This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Jesse Rebo, professor at the School of International Service at American University. Jesse is a human geographer who studies environmental justice and rural well-being. During our conversation, we talk about several aspects of Jesse's research, including his foundational work on the theory of access, which he developed with Nancy Peluso. This theory broadens the traditional framing of environmental property rights to consider a broad suite of social factors, such as market access and access to technology and capital, that enable or limit access to the environment and the benefits that come with this access. For anyone interested in theories of property rights in the environment, this work is a must read. We also talk about Jesse's contribution to understanding climate change and climate vulnerability. Here, Jesse questions the apolitical attribution of climate vulnerability solely to the most proximate physical events, such as storms or droughts. Echoing Amartya Sen's work on famine and entitlements, Rebo argues that this framing avoids the underlying dynamics of inequality that leads some to be more vulnerable to such events than others. In my mind, this work continues a thread in Jesse's research of unpacking concepts that have taken on a veneer of technicality and reminded us that we cannot avoid asking about social inequality and the politics involved in addressing the underlying drivers of our environmental problems. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jesse Rebo. Well, the first question, Jesse, is the most open-ended. So in some ways, it's good to not necessarily have prepared too much for this question. I mentioned to you that it was coming. Uh, and I call it now the origin story question to try to kind of peel back the layer on the guests of the podcast. And I like to do that because I see this podcast very much as about community building. And for me, part of that is trying to humanize the guests because you know, folks have read your work, they've seen PDFs, they maybe have seen the talk. I was looking at a talk you gave, it looked like it was at Sysync on YouTube earlier today. But still there's this, there's not always a sense of, you know, who the person is behind the words and the ideas, et cetera. What are the experiences that have led them to think the way they do? And so I, you know, I always do want to start there and I'd like to start there with you. And you've got this, you know, to, get, to already like invoke James Scott and the idea of legibility. There are parts of you that are, that are legible via internet searches, right? So I know that you're at the School for National Service at American University now. I know that you are at... Illinois University. And before that, you were at the World Resources Institute. And you got your PhD from Berkeley. And I saw that, you know, in your dissertation, you were already working in Senegal on some of the commodity chain stuff. So I'd like to start with an open-ended version of this question for you, Jesse, which is when you make sense of that history, you know, how do you make sense of it? Why do you think you ended up taking the path that you did? What were some formative decisions or events that immediately come to mind? The first thing that I think of is Earth Day, 1969, I think, or 68. When was the first Earth Day? I recall it because I was a kid, about eight or nine years old, and the 
park service in my town, my small town in New Jersey, had people down cleaning up the brook, the east branch of the Rowway River. And I was there up to my knees in what is probably more like sewage than water uh, and pulling out glass bottles and the like, and it was a horror. I, I was a child of the beginning of the environmental movement, but also the Vietnam War, uh, candlelight marches, um, riding on the shoulders of my bigger brother's friends during marches against the war uh, with flower reefs. I'm trying to remember the name of that weed that has a lovely little white flower on it. Mm. In any case, uh, I grew up in a time when there was a lot of turbulence. And in high school, I founded a group because we thought, you know, the environmental movement seems really cool. Uh, I founded a group called Activists for Environmental Protection. And it was all the sort of cool kids. We were about 10 of us and we sat around saying, well, what are we gonna do? And the big thing at the time that I was aware of was the bottle bill. Having pulled all those bottles out of the stream, it seemed like a great idea. And so we decided to write the legislature of New Jersey. The bottle bill had been um, implemented in Vermont requiring a deposit and uh, a repayment for the return of bottles. And so we thought, why not New Jersey? Well, we found out pretty quickly, New Jersey was the home of the glass industry. Nothing was gonna happen. So after writing a lot of letters and getting very polite uh, notes back from the uh, lowest ranking assistants of senators, um, we were frustrated and we had talked about all kinds of things. And uh, we decided by one of my uh, co-high school students, he said, let's go and do something. I'm tired of this, you know, thinking, let's do something. So we went up to the local forest called the reservation. It was a 2,400 acre forest, not far from New York City, the biggest forest within range of New York. Uh, and we went with plastic bags and with uh, rakes and we went to clean up a stream up there a lovely little stream that went over a little waterfall uh, and uh, hippies used to sit around getting stoned up on the rocks above the waterfall out in the woods. And we managed to fill, I think, a hundred garbage bags. And we cleaned with those hundred garbage bags about 200 feet of this stream. And when that day was done, I said, never again. I am never going to clean up the mess of other people. We need to make this so it doesn't happen. We need to make this illegal. We need to actually make it so there's some kind of enforcement. I basically felt something was wrong. Now, at about that time, 
there were there were ads on television because the environmental movement had caused a lot of anti-industrial sentiment. So the uh, area that I lived in was not far from the New Jersey Turnpike where it goes through Edison, New Jersey, and there are smokestacks and snarled pipes visible. Uh, and on every one of them, there was painted DuPont, Exxon, Esso it was at the time, not Exxon, Esso, and, you know, uh, Tuscan Milk, the New Jersey milk provider, had one of the cracking towers painted like a milk bottle. And once the environmental movement started, the entire place was painted silver and white. There was not a single advertisement left, no name of a responsible party on any of those snarling pipes. And uh, that struck me, oh, they're hiding. And the other thing that happened was you began getting commercials on television saying, don't be a litter bug. And I particularly remember one that upset me deeply, which was an indigenous man, a Native American, standing by the side of a highway in full regalia and looking out over the horizon across the highway into the fields. And a car drives by and out the window is thrown a plastic cup and a bag of garbage and it lands by his feet and splatters and a tear comes down his eye. And I thought, nope, nope, I don't like this. This is basically telling us, look away from industry, it's your fault. I was 15 years old, but this was so self-evident it made me want to go and, and um, plug up the uh, exhaust uh, pipes from industries. It, it, it seemed ridiculous. I don't think a hell of a lot has changed since then. But years later, I um, came back through on the turnpike by the facility that I mentioned, the, the industrial facility. And there's now a sign up again. And it's called Edison Environmental Facility. For me, that was about probably 1990-92. It was a reflection of how this had become a totally discursive kind of uh, battle. So those were some of my formative images from way back when, but I did not go to study environmental issues when I went to college. I went to college at Hampshire College um, in Amherst, Massachusetts. And when I was there, people came by and said, hey, Jesse, you've got to come with us. We're going to, uh, uh, we're the Clamshell Alliance. We're going to shut down the Clamshell nuclear power plant in New Hampshire. We're going to go protest. And I said to them, oh, that's great. What's wrong with nuclear power? Tell me. And they would say, it's bad, man. It's bad. And so I said, but, but 
nuclear power they're saying is clean and uh, coal, we see all this acid rain. The trees of New England are being destroyed from coal, it, you know? And I said, maybe nuclear is better. And, and they basically were like, what are you talking about? How can you not be anti-nuclear? So I decided to major in physics, nuclear physics, in order to understand um, this weird debate going on around me. And I did, I understood at the end that it was not in any way about um, the specific number of fatalities or damages of a particular energy source. It was about the way society weighs risk. Society doesn't mind deaths from coal that are diffuse lung disease in individual households here and there around the country. In fact, the most deaths from coal, according to John Holdren, when I was studying with him years later, the exact number of deaths, the, the, the most deaths from coal don't come in mining accidents or lung disease. They come from people getting hit by trains carrying coal. That's where most of the deaths are. But society would never blame that on coal, of course. And yet with nuclear, the risk was not um, that great in terms of number of people per year compared to coal, but it would be 100,000 people all at once and society couldn't sustain that. So these were formative sorts of moments for me. I came out of college thinking, wow, you know, nuclear is bad. We don't want this and we don't want it as a collective project because it would rip society apart. It's too dangerous. And as a collective decision, we can uh, focus in on that. And so I went to graduate school um, with some things in between, like I worked at Solar Energy Research Institute uh, and then Reagan was elected and he closed the Solar in Energy Institute down as one of his first acts. So I ended up at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, physics degree, and slid down the hill to Berkeley campus for a master's. Okay. I'm, I, I feel like I'm already seeing or hearing this theme that appears in your work, this concern about uh, what you say in some of your writing as occlusion or hiding responsibility and wanting to avoid discourses about where responsibility lies when it comes to the causes of certain problems. So I, I mean, I definitely want to return to that, but it's interesting that I feel like I'm already hearing that in some of these more formative experiences. Michael, that's a really interesting observation. I would have never thought that and you are absolutely right. And I'm not sure how to place that, but I do think that as a young man, I was very deeply concerned with moral mm. basis of, of position. Mm -hmm. In one of the talks of yours I was watching earlier today, you, you talked about value and values and the kind of inescapability of values 
and that we can't really, we have to talk about what our values are because of course, everything we're doing is value laden. I don't think, I don't know if you use the word value laden, but it's occurring to me now. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that, I think the term I'm looking for here is kind of this idea of a forced decision, which I learned in some philosophy course. There's some, there's some decisions we don't have to make, but some decisions ultimately to not make them ultimately is to make them. And I think that that's the way um, it sounds like you're talking about in some of your writings about morality and values that we have, we, we don't have an option, but to have some kind of moral or normative position, even if we try to pretend that we don't have to. That, that is correct for a, a large number of reasons. And the first being that we would not do anything if we did not have a motive. Mm -hmm. And motives are human and they are about what we need and desire. Mm -hmm. And so they are value-laden. Yeah. And that includes doing primary research. Yeah. But it's not just in the motives, it's also then in the choice that we have of analytic frames, or, or well, the choice that we have of questions that we ask, of the analytic frames we bring to them, and of what we do with the results we find. And these uh, are all linked in some way to outcomes which have implications, good or bad, for humans, for people. Yeah. So just to mention this really quickly too, because you reminded me of last year sometime, I listened to, I listened to a ton of podcasts in addition to making this one. It's become like one of my main hobbies really. And one of my favorite ones at NPR is called Planet Money, which is kind of a mis misleading title because it's a lot, it's about a lot more than money. I guess the word planet's pretty broad. Um, and they have an episode where they talk about plastic recycling. And I think there's another podcast called How to Fix a Planet also talked about it. And it was one of their most popular and controversial episodes because what they say in there is, is similar to what you're saying is that this whole idea that of these like triangles on plastic was basically an industry campaign to get us to think that we could suddenly recycle all of our plastic when really we can't recycle and not nearly as much plastic is recycled as a lot as certainly I would, I, I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I see these like labels and I think, Oh, well, like, okay, I'm doing a good job. I can like, maybe I can use more single use plastic because of course I'm, I can still be responsible with it and I can consume right. and I'm fine. I'm doing my duty and I don't have to worry about, you know, producer liability issues, anything like that. And it, I, you know, my initial response was to be angry at like the planet money people. Cause you know, I was thinking, what do you, what do you mean? I can't recycle this. Like, what do you mean? Like, of, of, of course I can. This is like how I think is like a well-informed liberal. And then it was like, okay, no, it turns out that I need to rethink how I'm thinking about the placement of responsibility based on these symbols that I'm seeing, for example, is on these like bottles. Yeah. I, I, I think it is really, um, it, it, it's a very troubling issue because it's true that recycling can assuage people's sense of responsibility. And there are a lot of ways in which that happens. But I'm struck because one of the things I observed is in West Africa, in Mauritania, um, 
I think it was 10 years ago, if not more, the, actually, I think it was seven years ago that I was there. So seven years ago, Mauritania had already banned plastic bags uh, in all uses. And Senegal followed. And there are other countries in Africa that seem to be able to do this without a problem. And one of the um, reasons for this that I was told was that because the municipalities clean the garbage up and take the garbage, they banned it because they were getting so much they didn't know what to do with it and where to put it. And it was costing them. So because you're not in a place where it's the manufacturers that rule, and you're not in a place where they can say, well, you pay for your own garbage removal, so we don't care what you consume and use. Um, in fact, we'd like you to consume and use more and make more garbage because that's profitable. Uh, they banned it and it worked and nobody complained and it was fine. So uh, the amount of plastic on the streets totally uh, disappeared. Hmm. I mean, so now that you mention um, West Africa, I mean, I think that's a good segue into um, this part of your professional identity that seems very prominent. The field work you've done, the extent to which, um, I mean, I don't know if you would use the word embedded, but it seems like a lot of it's pretty intensive. Uh, you know, and I saw on your website, you refer to yourself as a human geographer. Um, it's also, you also sometimes seem to me like an environmental or cultural anthropologist. It's not always clear to me where some types of anthropology stop and where other types of geography start, but who knows. Um, but could you talk to me about how that work began? Did it start during your PhD dissertation work when you, I assume, you, was when you first went to Senegal or how'd that go? Um, again, everything has a long meandering story. Life is a meander. I was at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs in the energy division as a staff scientist. And I had been sent to France that summer to deliver a database because I um, had been uh, studying French, which very little, I had one semester of French but one of, the, uh, uh, one of the other researchers at the lab was called by USAID at the time. And they wanted an energy analyst who spoke French, who could go to Djibouti, East Africa to help do a national energy assessment. And everybody pointed to me because I was talking about international development. I had begun studying it down on the campus at Berkeley uh, for reasons that had to do with believing that the energy crisis, which we were in the middle of at that time, or just out the other end of at that time, uh, would be much better solved by going to places where energy technologies had not yet been developed and committed to such that there could be a little leapfrogging over the inefficient technologies. 
And um, actually, I had a proposal at the time to bring African anthropologists to California to study electric utilities, to understand why they would not promote household energy conservation. Uh, nobody liked my proposal. It didn't get funded. Uh, but in any case, I went to Djibouti and I effectively learned French in Djibouti. Good thing that in the interview, when they asked me if I spoke French, I said, bien sûr. And that was the end of the interview about French. And so they did not know I could barely uh, put together a sentence. And uh, it was good. I, I did fine in Djibouti. And I found in Djibouti where they wanted me to study oil and gas use and electric use that uh, wood fuel was a big part of people's use, despite that all the studies that existed said it was non-existent because Djibouti is totally desert and there isn't any wood. So I went and I did household surveys all over the country in the five small towns. Just on your own decided to do that? Yeah, as part of this project. Okay. I was funded by USAID under a, um, an NGO that brought me in and uh, called Volunteers and Technical Assistance. And I basically wrote a report that said, you know, this fuel thing matters. And I had read the book, The Other Energy Crisis, uh, and I had read Cold Hearths, Barren Slopes by our good friend Bina Agarwal. Uh, and I knew that, you know, wood fuel was a problem. And I then, when I was done in Djibouti after three months there, traveled to Ethiopia just to see more of East Africa and then to Kenya. And I saw charcoal being burnt in the cities. And I did a back of the envelope calculation that said, cities are 10% of the population. They are consuming more than 50% of the wood fuels in these countries. The rural deforestation being blamed on forest villagers in the books, Other Energy Crisis and Cold Hearth Barren Slopes are in fact being caused by urban dwellers and blamed on rural dwellers. And this is an injustice. I came back to the United States where I was doing my master's degree, began writing a proposal to look at this problem. I found that Senegal had the best data and the city of Dakar was easy to study because it was on a peninsula and had one road where it would be easy to monitor, uh, monitor wood coming in and out or well, coming in really. And so I wrote a proposal, wrote a Fulbright, got funded before I actually um, got into the PhD program, got into the PhD program. And they said, you go do your field work now and we don't guarantee you will get any credit for having done it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you're doing this backward. And I said, my purpose is to understand this problem. It's not to get a PhD. Mm. I went, came back, wrote it up and they, they were nice. They gave me uh, the honor of having a doctorate. So um, that's how I got to Djibouti. Uh, no, excuse me, to Senegal. Yeah. 
And I mean, so, and that also sounds like that initial observation about the rural urban uh, relationship is how you got interested in commodity chains as one of your Correct. main areas of focus. Correct. My hypothesis for my doctoral work was that the, uh, the rural consequences of, of urban demand would be shaped not by supply and demand, but by the politics of control over the resource. Mm. And that meant how markets controlled uh, the resource. This is where my work on access uh, came in. Mm. Mm -hmm. That basically the ability to shape access to the forests meant that there was intensive production for urban use rather than the diffuse rural production. And that caused the deforestation around villages that was being blamed on the villages themselves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I feel like I'm hearing a the theme about responsibility and you wanting to ask where it lies. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so moving to your work on access and a way I was interested in framing this and kind of the rest of the discussion, it seems to me that in terms of your work on access and your work on you know, climate change and vulnerability, which we also are gonna talk about, there is this common theme of wanting to kind of peel back some initial layers that are presuming, that are, are you know, occluding in a word that you use in one of your writings, um, that are not asking important questions about power and politics and responsibility and are doing so in part because it's inconvenient to do so, or it's awkward to do so, or we have to ask uncomfortable questions about who has the power and who has the responsibility if we don't ignore those things. And this, you know, as a commons person, this resonates with me quite strongly because in, you know, in the commons field, we talk a lot about panaceas and technical solutions, you know, in, in the kind of prescriptive space when we're thinking about, you know, how do we actually solve problems you know, Lynn Ostrom used to talk all the time, right, about how we, there's no one solution to the world's problems. This idea of a panacea relates strongly to the idea of a, you know, a so-called technical solution, technical solution being one that is kind of uh, amoral or apolitical. Um, and I think panaceas tend to be technical solutions because you can maybe scale a technical solution versus if it's about morals and behavior and people, it's hard to do that. So that focus in a lot of your work was one of the main reasons why when I first read it, it really resonated with me based on where I was coming from. And I'd like to first talk about your work on access and its relation, you know, your kind of theory of access. As you said, you wrote this foundational article in 2003 with Nancy Peluso. I think it's just called a theory of access. Yeah, theory of mm -hmm. access in rural sociology. And it was, was it 2003 actually in my yes. notes? Yeah, okay. Um, I wrote a piece um, in 1998 called Theory of Access as well. Right, and that was, that was in your, wasn't that in Senegal? And you were also looking at the commodity That was more there? looking at the commodity chain. Yeah. yeah. And Nancy had also written some on access in her book, 
1990 something, okay. uh, 92, I believe, uh, on Indonesia. Okay. Rich forests, poor people. Okay. So I think the, you know, the listeners of this podcast would really benefit from hearing you talk about these ideas for a bit. So my understanding is that you start with this, the starting place, at least in, in the article that I read is, okay, we have this idea of property rights. There's a theory of property rights and we, you know, there's different reasons about why they matter. And one of the things that property rights do, right, is that they limit access. And why, you know, that is both good in the sense of, okay, maybe we're, we're conjuring up the ghost of Garrett Hardin and thinking about avoiding the tragedy of the commons. Maybe we're also worried about the ex exclusionary aspects of property rights because, you know, by limiting access, you're limiting access. And so there's going to be winners and losers. And this, right towards the beginning of that article, you talk about, um, access as being basically a broader lens on the question of who uh, um, about access basically saying that property rights is only one way in which access is actually guaranteed or limited and there's a whole suite of other social dynamics having to do a lot with politics and power and identity that also plays a big role in who ultimately has, and you define access, right? I think as the ability to derive benefits from things. And so that's, that's how I'm understanding this is saying, okay, we, you know, it's not a criticism per se of, of property rights discourses, but what it's saying is, look, if you're only talking about that, you're missing a lot. You're missing a lot of what ultimately determines who benefits and, and who doesn't from access and the ability to derive rights from you know, in a lot of our context, the natural environment. Yeah. The, the, this article, The Theory of Access, came for me from a very simple observation. Almost all the rural political economy people were obsessed with property. So were the commons people. And the thing that I saw when doing my field research was that there were people who completely controlled forests. They might as well have had property rights, but they couldn't benefit from them because they were the wrong ethnicity. They couldn't mobilize labor. They didn't have capital. They uh, had beliefs that limited the way they might use the forest. Uh, they didn't have permits, licenses, quotas, you name it. And so it seemed to me that property was inadequate for uh, describing who got to benefit and who didn't. So the theory of access basically is not saying property limits access. Property enables access and limits it. It gives access to one or some people and takes it from others, okay? It assigns who benefits from this thing and property is a right. It's an enforceable claim, uh, enforceable by law, custom or convention, which means that if somebody breaches your property right, 
other people will come and defend it. That's how it is an enforceable claim. But if you begin to look, there are many ways in which people benefit from things that don't have anything to do with rights. They can do it through violence. I can benefit by stealing, stealth. I can benefit through complementarities uh, in which uh, you um, have labor and I have capital and we put them together and this generates a greater good. It, it sounds like exchange, but it may not be. Uh, it's like the situation where someone owns a forest but can't benefit from it because they don't have a right to the market and market access. So the notion of a theory of access was to find a way of empirically studying why it is some people benefit and why it is others do not. By looking at specific instances where somebody was able to benefit, say from a forest or a tree, produce firewood or charcoal, pick the fruits, whatever it might be, and to trace from that the causes of that moment and that ability. And that's what you refer to as access mapping? That is access mapping. Mm -hmm. uh, others have called it progressive contextualization. Um, I like and, access mapping. Yeah, I like access mapping. How does this relate to the relationship between kind of formal rules and informal rules in terms of, could someone say, well, okay, it's not enough to have formal rights. What ultimately matters are the informal relationships and rule and, and, and social norms. And that's really what matters. How much of your message overlaps with the message that it's not just formal rules that matter, it's also about informal norms? It partly overlaps because as I said earlier, um, a, a right is an enforceable claim. Property is a right, for example, mm -hmm. enforceable by law, custom, or convention. Uh, custom and convention are informal rules, but there are many other things that are neither law, custom, nor convention, like force, okay? Uh, like stealth, like identity, which you may say, well, you know, people accept and enforce. Sure. Um, identity is embedded within norms, mm -hmm. but it's also fluid. Um, it is a category in and of itself that has to be constructed. So there's a lot of work that goes into the production of those forms of access. Okay. And so one more question. I know I want to ask this before moving to your work on climate vulnerability and how that's framed and talked about is, I mean, you're right. It was, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You, you say that commons folks are, uh, have a preoccupation with property. Uh, I mean, I certainly do. We talk about property regimes, for example, individual versus common, et cetera, is maybe one of the biggest distinctions for us. What is your 
you know, could you talk to me a little bit about how you have engaged and thought about those concepts, those, the broad level, like kind of property regime concepts and how that relates to your own work? I think the most formative moment was a 1994 paper that Lynn Ostrom had written on the categories of property, private to commons, along a spectrum of the classic sort of ideas of divisibility, consumability, uh, subtractability, excludability. Uh, and in looking at that, um, I was struck because she really opened things up, legitimating the non-individualized uh, private categories, and in fact, naturalizing in a sense, mm. the idea that there were categories of property that didn't fit into individual private schemes. In other words, that capitalism per se could not commodify every form of territory. Uh, and that to me was interesting. And uh, it was also in many of the um, property rights literatures, uh, property was so much the focus that it, it, it also um, overshadowed these sorts of notions that there might be other dynamics here that are making the struggle between smallholders and larger farmers, the struggles to in fact um, transform landscapes more difficult. So mm -hmm. I, I think Lynn's work and others uh, got me thinking along those lines and certainly had an influence on me. Now, I'm not sure uh, if that answers your question. Uh, yeah, it does. It was an open-ended question, so I wasn't looking for like a, a specific answer. Yeah, I was just curious about how, given your critique of a lot of the kind of standard property right discourse, that it's not inclusive enough in this way, what you thought about some of the primary concepts that we use. But yeah, it's, it's something that I've been thinking about a fair amount recently within the U.S. context, just how... Um, underemphasized, underformalized, underrecognized is the word common property is. And the fact that that actually creates a lot of problems for folks who are trying to collectively own something. Mm -hmm. There's a book I was reading by a colleague of mine about um, the experience of, of Native Americans and Native American common property that was a lot of it was essentially pushed aside in favor of privatized individual private property for white settlers historically. And there was, was recently, again, listening to another podcast about the challenge of African-Americans who inherit property and can't really own it collectively. It's called air property. And because they can't own it collectively, it creates all kinds of problems. And so the fact that our legal system doesn't recognize common property, the word you use, which I think is really effective is it naturalized it for you, right? Because when we don't see something, it, it seems like it's kind of it's kind of othered in the way that we can other other people, as opposed to thinking, oh, no, this is like something that happens in the world. And it's not this like, 
funny other thing that other other people use. It's like, it's actually kind of funny that we don't recognize it. Yeah, I mean, it, naturalizing in this sense um, are things that, that I'm sitting looking out at a mountain landscape and no matter how many photographs I take of it, it's not gonna go away. But the chocolate bar over here every bite I take of it, there's less chocolate bar. Mm. Those are characteristics of the material world that make them different forms of value and property. And so obviously there would be no need for property where there's no value and value itself is about human needs, aspirations, desires. Mm. But, um, the complicating factor is that technologies often transform the degree to which a piece of property, in fact, can be divisible, excludable, uh, and so on. So uh, you can take a, a mountain landscape, privatize it, and charge people to come in and photograph it. If you have the scale of technology to control that landscape, or if you have the army uh, or so forth. I wanted to come back earlier, you said something that I, I don't wanna miss an opportunity to say something about. You were talking about technical fixes mm -hmm. uh, to many of our problems. And one of the other things that I've observed over and over again, you cannot name a problem that we face for which we do not already have lots of solutions on the shelf, okay? Whether it's climate change or, uh, or, or getting to the market on time, these are all things where there's technologies on the, set, set, uh, uh, on the shelf. However, I think the real issue is if it interrupts the growth of the economy, it is pushed out. So you have a kind of Schumpeterian ideal where, oh, well, we cannot um, achieve something that we've been doing already. So we need a technology to make it so we can continue doing what we're doing at a lower cost, either financially, as in Schumpeter's innovation notions, or ecologically. We can't conceive of, wait a minute, we don't need more efficient giant cars. Perhaps we need smaller cars, more diverse transport, you know, so on and so forth. But it's framed as needing a technical fix often when, okay, use the technologies we have. But I say this because I was on um, the Beckman Institute research, uh, one of their uh, sub-institutes boards, and every single grant was about innovating new fangled ways of solving these problems. And I said, I'm sorry, we need to think about the social question of why we're not in fact using 
the technologies and options that we already had. They couldn't see it. Mm. And that's a matter of um, a deep divide between the natural and social sciences on these issues in which I think the natural sciences are quite captured by mm. the, the ideal of innovating our way out of every uh, problem. Yeah, you're reminding me of a book I read most of last year called The Innovator's Delusion. And there's a bit of a movement based on that book. It's in response to another book called The Innovator's Dilemma by this, I think, Harvard business professor, Clayton Christensen. And that first book was all about what you're saying in terms of, um, I use the word fetishize too much in this context, but kind of promoting, believing too much in innovation as, you know, starting off as an instrumental goal, but ultimately being some kind of inherent goal that we pursue almost for its own sake is just this idea that that's all we really ever need. Yeah. Uh, I I would love it if you would send me the reference because the 1942, I think it is, or 44 book by Schumpeter, Mm -hmm. um, creative destruction uh, is introduced in which he has a very interesting um, sort of argument that innovation is the core of the progression of economic expansion mm-hmm. and of, uh, of competitive edge in all um, market systems. I mean, it's kind of an exciting idea if you're in a privileged position to feel like you're one of these, you know, cool innovators. Sure. Um, but but it, it's been fetishized. I think you're quite right. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the points that sticks with me from the, the, yeah, and I'll send you the reference for that. From this other perspective is when we emphasize maintenance, we de-emphasize and de-recognize. No, when we emphasize innovation, we de-recognize and de-emphasize care and maintenance, right? And arguably, I think we, in this economy, we have a crisis of care, right? There's, there's, it's hard to find people who will take on the professions of care. Um, my own opinion is that we don't compensate folks who are involved in care-based relationships very much. You can't scale care right. very we, much. Well, it's, it's gendered, it's yes. racialized. Yep. It, it's even to the point at which if you are a lawyer and you want to fight, be a lawyer for a human rights cause or work for any kind of um, uh, social good, you'll be impoverished as a lawyer. And that's true of all of us. I mean, you know, uh, it doesn't pay as it were to do good. Uh, Yeah. yeah. That's a problem. So turning squarely to your work on climate, which you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, there's this new, so, you know, in my mind, we're, we are still squarely in, in part of the conversation here is about responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about causation or causality. And that relates to responsibility. Because in my mind, right? Um, 
causes are often based, you know, causes are often social. And to me, that's one of the main points you seem to be making is in fact that there's behaviors and, and histories of behaviors behind this. And you talk about this, use the word proximate cause. And in my mind, that's distinguished from underlying or ultimate causes. So could you talk to me about why, and so in your own words, could you talk to me about why the language of causation and this distinction between kind of the most immediate causes versus maybe more underlying historical causes is interesting when we're talking about climate change, climate hazards, which, right, which are kind of how climate change is visited upon particular places. And this other concept that you talk about in this work, the vulnerability of these places. When we're talking about that suite of related concepts, why is it important to talk about cause and responsibility the way you do? Yeah, uh, let me enter that with an example. The, the most common model of climate-related disasters is the hazard model. And the hazard, being the climate, hits a static society and there's damage. The cause is located in the climate event, in climate in its normal extremes or in climate change, added damage. But in fact, the same climate event can have very different damages depending on the circumstances that it finds in place. The example might be in Bangladesh, I think it was Cyclone Bola, where 500,000 people died after it. Years later, Sidere, it was something like 100,000 people, same storm surge hitting the same area. And another, perhaps decade later, a similar storm hit and there were less than 10,000 fatalities. Now, it's the same event killing different numbers of people in each instance, and this had to do with policy and social arrangements. And so the cause of the damages cannot be located in the climate event. It was in the securities, the, the precarity, the vulnerability on the ground. I believe 70% of the deaths in Sidera were women. And there were a number of reasons for this that were during the storm, even before the storm, having to wear clothing, not knowing how to swim, having to stay home with the children in the households when the storm surge came in, uh, and afterwards being excluded from health centers, being uh, murdered, raped for being alone afterwards when trying to seek help. Uh, so, you know, uh, you can't blame those deaths on the storm. So uh, a similar thing is if you imagine a drought hitting Northeast Brazil, killing 500,000 people at the beginning of the last century and a drought hitting Southwest United States of the exact same meteorological magnitude, it may kill a few cattle, but no people would die. Uh, so how can you say that the storm caused the deaths. But that's what climate models and projections say. They project a storm, 
they say, well, this will, in this circumstance, in this circumstance, those are the key words, cause the following damage. And then, well, we double the storm and we see double the damage. Therefore, the incremental damage was caused by the climate change increment. But in fact, had that been a more secure circumstance, doubling the storm's intensity may have caused zero additional damage. Had they been more vulnerable, doubling the storm's intensity may have caused 20 times the damage. Not possible to attribute these proportions without taking into account the causes of the circumstance that the climate hazard, hazard finds in place, right? That's the question. And by doing that, you're shifting responsibility from the sky. It, it you know, vulnerability, uh, as I like to say, does not fall from the sky. But in fact, you're pointing to the climate event which actually you can then say, well, it was caused by industrial countries, it was caused, but that's still very diffuse versus it was caused by a very precarious circumstance in formerly colonized countries that did not have the capital to develop. And, and I think of this in terms of the San Francisco earthquake, 7.2 or 7.1 and the Haiti earthquake 7.1, I think it was 46 deaths in San Francisco and it was 200,000 in Haiti. The deaths in those circumstances, even the ones in San Francisco, mostly in the collapse of the Cypress Structure Highway, which the Berkeley engineering students had written about and sent notes to the governor's office that this would be where everyone would die and it would be easy to fix and here's how to fix it. This was an assignment they were given every year. It was ignored. So 30 something of the deaths of the 46 were due to the negligence of the governor. And this brings up another very important issue. Morality plays a big role. It plays an enormous role because in natural sciences, the modeling that you see for climate damage, assessment or projections, in the natural sciences, something that did not happen cannot be a cause. In the natural sciences, something that doesn't happen isn't a cause. In the social sciences, something that doesn't happen is often a cause. It's called negligence, it's called turpitude, it's called whatever you want, it's based on the most fundamental social characteristic, the social contract. The fact that we relate to each other, talk to each other, make agreements, have law, custom, and convention that mean we have expectations. And it is in those expectations that we can look back and say, wow, something that didn't happen, like the maintenance of the dikes in, in the lower ninth ward uh, at when Katrina hit was in fact the cause of the flooding and the deaths. It was not only the cause of the flooding and the deaths, it was negligence on the part of the Army Corps of Engineers and the circuit courts agreed with that. And not only that, it also came out that that negligence was tinged with racism. 
So social causality. Katrina did not cause anybody to die. How, how do you square these different causes? Katrina causing people to die is in fact an interesting notion. And you could choose a model that says, well, we're just looking at New Orleans as it now is, and Katrina hits, this happens. Therefore, it did cause these deaths, but that's a moral choice. You are choosing to hold constant the actual context that caused the possibility of these deaths. And in the social sciences, we do not hold that context constant, not in the, uh, well, in some of the more reductive <laughs> I was gonna say, social yeah. sciences, uh -huh. we now do. Mm -hmm. But at least we recognize that that is a choice and that that choice has moral implications because it shapes what we see as the points of causality. And those points of causality are linked to responsibility and blame, but they are also linked to possible insight into solutions. Right, right. Once you're more open to the universe of causation, you're more open to changing things in that universe. Exactly. And so you want a full causal analytic, mm -hmm. which I would say includes the hazard. Mm -hmm. Because without the hazard, there's no damage. Without the vulnerability, there's also no damage. So both are needed, and there is no way to give a proportionality to the two. Right, you can't shove them in a regression model and see who outcompetes the other. Yeah, it, it, there's also no way. I mean, people who are saying that 5% of the migrants from Latin America are uh, migrating due to climate change, nonsense. This is a made up number in the Groundswell report, uh, World Bank Group's report. It, it can't be done because if you varied the vulnerabilities a little bit, you'd see that it could be 40%, it could be 0%. You know, it's, it's a moral choice to locate causality in that way. And I think if you actually interviewed people, which most of these studies did not, most of them would talk about violence lack of job opportunities, low income, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Jesse, this does seem to, and I don't remember whether I'm making this up or, or, or if I did read it in one of your articles, that this connects fairly intuitively to your work on access. If I think to myself, okay, some of the causes of vulnerabilities to hazards relate to this broader universe that affects access and the ability to derive benefits from things or the lack of access to. So if I have more access, um, I am able to derive more benefits from my natural environment and therefore maybe I'm less vulnerable. So in, in both cases, we're expanding the universe of causation. And I, you do cite Mark Dussain's work on entitlements and famine that's where I was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, 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 it seems like you are building on his work and you, you distinguish access versus entitlements. I don't know if that's something you want to build on. No, no, it's not versus. Okay. Um, I, I think that what we have to understand is Marcus Sen 
really revolutionized thinking mm-hmm. on these issues. Um, he was not the first, but basically what he did was to say, when there is a famine, it is not caused by the absence of food. That as he looked across different famines, he found there was enough food to feed everyone. So you had to look elsewhere. So the food availability decline that was commonly believed to cause famines was essentially thrown out the window. It doesn't mean that food availability decline is not significant. It it can be part of the cause of famine as the farmers sell their food, they then the food is then hoarded, the prices go up and the farmers themselves can't buy it back and they go hungry. That can happen. That is an entitlement failure. They could not with their assets purchase enough food. It didn't mean it was absolutely absent from their area. It simply means, as Sen would describe, there's an entitlement failure. And I think it's brilliant. Uh, I would say that my work links to that insofar as I look at a much longer chain of causality of the failure of those Mm. entitlements, the assets that people need to purchase or store or gain um, access to food. So, so the, the way I look at it is that hunger and famine and any other deprivation is an access failure. Okay. So you then look at the instance in which somebody does not have what they need and you trace back and map the access and failure of access. What caused that? And here you can trace what did happen and also what did not happen in a, in a way that is, I think, a more complete analytic approach. Okay. So last year, I also wrote a book by um, Anand Garitaratis. It's called The Winners Take All After the Colon. It's the elite charade of changing the world. And what he's arguing that book, he's arguing against win-win framings to our problems. He's critiquing wealthier upper-class folks who want to say that they can prescribe solutions that ultimately benefit everyone. And his argument is that the the motivation to have a win-win framing is because, again, it depoliticizes our social problems by saying, look, I don't have to give anything up in order for other people to also benefit. It's not a, I lose, you win. It's I can keep winning based on things being kind of the way they have been while everyone else who has less than me can also win. And I read that I've been really, I've been struggling with this kind of win-win versus win-lose framings of our problems. Vis-a-vis say climate change. It has at times seemed intuitive to me to think about climate change as kind of, I've heard, you know, you hear it talked about as like the ultimate collective action problem. It's big, there's lots of people, there is this collective interest in having a stable climate. And so, and that's what a collective action problem is in, in part. There's this group interest, but then individually, we have individual interests that get in the way of promoting the group interest. 
And it's one of these things where it's like, okay, if I don't think about it too hard, that, that makes some sense. And it helps understand why we can't confront it. But the, and, and so it's kind of the ultimate tragedy of the commons, right? And a critique of that that I've started to agree with is that that framing this as, okay, it's potentially if we can all just get off our butts and help fix the climate change problem, it's a win-win. We all benefit. But it turns out, right, there are folks in the world who are both disproportionately contributing to and are disproportionately buffered from the consequences of climate change. And benefiting from. And benefiting from. So their interests are, that to me takes away this idea of a group interest because folks that are disproportionately benefiting from and buffered, benefiting from contributing climate change and buffered from the consequences, their interests are not the same. Correct. And so I'm interested in your response to these observations and that kind of critique and how it relates to your own work on climate change and how we frame it and think about it. The win-win reads a lot to me like Pareto optimality. Mm. It, mm-hmm. it reads to me like, let's keep the market going and simply accept trade agreed upon and that the assumption is will always lead to the best outcomes. It's only almost a Julian Simon kind of optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's true. I think one of the real limits to neoclassical economics is its inability to capture conflict. Mm-hmm. And that means conflicting interest, not just incommensurate interest. And so your question reminded me of a New Yorker cartoon with a businessman speaking to a bunch of business men, uh, all standing there listening. And he's saying, pointing at a a graph and he's saying, Climate change is going to be terrible. The world is going to be ending and it's going to be horrible and and destructive. But between now and then, there are many opportunities for profit. Okay. You know, unfortunately, the interests are so far apart that an idea of win-win is only going to happen when we, I think, come closer to moments of crisis. I think that if you look at uh, the Great Transformation, 1944, I think it was, uh, the book by Karl Polanyi. Karl Polanyi's The Great Transformation basically shows that capitalism at the time the satanic mills were destroying people. And it was the emergence of social movements that caused the enlightened self-interest of capital 
where capital saw that if it did not give something, it stood to lose. How do we get to that kind of um, situation? So what was fabulous about Polanyi's work, it wasn't a Marxist sort of asymptotic contradictions um, of, end of history capitalism, kind of end of history. It was, hey, this is a back and forth negotiated situation in which capitalism is much more flexible and, and adaptable than we ever thought. And yet there are other interests in there. Uh, Nancy Fraser has begun to write about, um, Polanyi talked about the double movement of um, capital being destructive and social movements against it establishing uh, a boundary in the context of the enlightened self-interest of capital. And Nancy Fraser is bringing in a third movement, which is emancipatory movements that might in fact bring uh, government into the enlightened self-interest of the longer term uh, well-being. So uh, that's a real simplification of what she's arguing. Mm. But I, I, um, I think those are all possibilities. Yeah, for the getting to um, getting to win-win, but it doesn't erase the uh, other New Yorker cartoon where some guy's saying, "What if it's all lose-lose and it goes bad-bad?" <laughs> yeah, it can happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the connection to Pareto, this idea of Pareto improvements, where it, which is like a change where some people get better off and no one gets worse off. It just feels like if you wanted to create an analytical device that insulates your framework from questions of inequality, like it's a great one for that. Yeah, and Lynn Ostrom did not get past that, unfortunately. Mm. Lynn did not deal well with conflict. It was all about cooperation. Mm -hmm. And I, I think some of her students are bringing more of that uh, political economy back in. Yeah, well, you have this paper that you sent me with uh, Prakash. Yeah, Prakash Kashwan. Prakash was a student of Lynn's, one of the, her last students. Yeah, yeah, I knew Prakash. We, we were at Indiana for a couple of years together. Yeah, and, and there we, we introduced the concept of... Uh, instead of silent violence, Michael Watts's idea, we introduced the concept of violent silence, uh, was the idea basically that the various occlusions by models, assumptions, moral positions are in fact ultimately violent. They prevent us from seeing the broader range of potential solutions that could in fact uh, serve a broader well-being, security, and um, even serve the pointing of fingers in the right direction in terms of responsibility and hopefully leverage action. I mean, that kind of naturally brings me to my, one of my Last questions I want to ask you, Jesse, which is, you know, where do you think we go from here? And part of that question I want to be about you 
you know, when you think about your next steps, where do you see yourself going in terms of your own research program, your career? Relatedly, you know, you're, you're asking challenging questions and you're asking us to take seriously historical inequalities, things that go way back. How do we kind of take this scholarship and what do we what do we want to what do we do with it? Because we it's it 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 puts us into a, a less comfortable prescriptive space, right? Because we can't say, well, we just need to have better models and that will fix it. Yeah. So what what do you think? Um I, the first thing I think is who's we? Um when you ask what do we do? There's a, it, it, it's a big question. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different we's out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best we can do, the, the we who are doing the analysis from my side, the best I can do is to provide tools to map causality in various ways so that it can be discussed and the options of what can be done and who should do it can be negotiated. Uh, simple as that. I'm very optimistic and not in a Pollyanna-ish way. I'm optimistic that there will be crises of all sorts, but that the more we are able to encourage broad thinking, the better off we'll be. Mm. That doesn't get rid of the horrors that surround us. Um, I'm not optimistic about a solution to anything. I think that the struggle for a better world is continuous. You don't arrive at it. You continue the fight. And so having tools enables us and those who choose to be part of the battles to engage. Um, democracy, which I, I, I've done a lot of work on local democracy, it's never achieved. It's achieved, clawed back, reestablished, uh, hijacked, recaptured by more broad-based forces. It's a struggle and I think all of what we do is. And so I spent 30 years debating climate modelers about the assumptions within their models that do not reveal the more social and political economic causes of the problems they are projecting. Finally, after 30 years of that, I'm co-authoring articles with climate modelers. It took a long time and they will slip back. Cognitive dissonance, when they see that the things they're saying will probably get them um, defunded, they'll probably start thinking differently. <laughs> you know, who knows? Uh, I don't know. But I think it, it is a process and not something where you reach a singular goal. Yeah, I mean, I think that applies to just life in general, right? A lot of us, we kind of reach for, okay, I'll have arrived at this point and, 
and your brain doesn't really think about what you'll do then. And then you get to some point and you wake up the next day and your problems are still your problems and you still have to have tools to deal with them. Exactly. I still have to go out and split some wood and put it in the hearth and wake up tomorrow morning warm, hoping no pipes froze and uh, continue on to the next day. Yeah, I mean, I think this something else I want to respond to is, you know, your emphasis on the amount of time things take. I think there's kind of an impatience we have currently, and maybe this relates to the fetishization of innovation that, you know, the hard work requires, God, I can always, I always forget this person's name, but there's a, a professor at Tufts who wrote a book about politics, and I'll look this up maybe and put it in the notes, but he was interviewed by the the, pod, the hidden brain podcast and what he says is we you know politics ultimately is about power and gaining power and if you want to make a difference you have to kind of play the long game and he has anecdotes of people who you know they live in their communities and they want something to change and so they work for 15 years to get it to change in that one community and I think if we're being realistic, that's what it takes. It's, and we get so, and it's like, oh, 15 years, that's a lifetime. It's like, well, okay, but do you actually want something to change? It, the, the, it does take the long-term view and it takes it in another way as well. Schumpeter, who talked about crisis theory, had a very interesting idea about change. Basically that, you had to be prepared and understand and know what was going on so that when the moments of crisis emerge, you'd be able to steer history at that juncture and make things happen in more progressive ways. Okay. Uh, you may be prepared and the crisis may never meet you. And so you may never use that preparation. It's still worth preparing. It's enriching. So that's why you know how to go chop wood in the Catskills. Exactly. And uh, think about the future as I do it. Uh, you asked, you know, about what the plans are. And I I'm working on a book project, uh, a, a book project that is really, I don't know where it's going. I think it just needs more cases to illustrate some of the arguments we went over today. Um, I would also like to challenge some frames that have percolated up uh, the ontological turn, so-called, uh, I think is destructive of uh, productive intellectual engagement. Can you um, say what that is, Jesse? The notion that we should have non-hierarchical flat ontologies where there is no judgment of the hierarchy of being. Um, Bruno Latour. Mm. Actor network um, theory, is that what that is? Act, actor network theory, which is not a theory because as Latour says of actor network theory, um, there's no such thing as theory because nothing is reducible to anything else. But if nothing is reducible to anything else, then there's also uh, no knowledge. Theory is the tincture of learning. It is a reduction. Uh, 
There are many assumptions within it that make it hard. The, the idea of distributive agency, that agency is everywhere. I'm sorry, human influence is everywhere, but agency is not. Agency is intentionality and it is uniquely human. Uh, I will challenge arguments that um, viruses and bananas and eggplants and rocks have agency. I think that the real reason to challenge it is simply because agency is the absolute locus of any notion of responsibility. Mm. And so I'm, I'm not going to sit around blaming a hurricane or an eggplant for my problems. I think it's important to trace causality to the social structures that enable us and disable us to achieve what Sen would call the, the desirable beings and doings or functionings of life. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.